Well, good morning, City Light Lincoln Church. It's good to see you all. Uh, my name is Austin. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're just joining us, we're walking through the Gospel of John. And uh, simply stated, John's purpose for writing this account of Jesus's life is that you would know that Jesus is the Son of God, believe in him, and that from that belief that you would have eternal life. Um, fairly simple, simple in, his, um, in his reasoning for writing this. And so up until this point, Jesus has been uh, revealing himself, and people don't really like that, especially the religious leaders of the time, okay? But Jesus um, confirms that faith is the only way to be made right with God, okay? Not better works, not uh, more Bible memorized, not trying harder, doing better. Simply faith in God is the way to be made right with God, Okay, um, so he's confronting them that we're made right with God by our faith in God, not our faithfulness to God. Does that make sense? Faith in God, not faithfulness to God is what makes us right with him. And that's hard for us to hear because we naturally want to justify ourselves. We want to say, well, look at my resume. Look what I've done. But Jesus speaks in to the lies we believe and gives us his beautiful truth. So, um, uh, this morning we'll be in John chapter eight, and I feel like he's he's doing that. But before we jump in, I want to ask a question: uh, Has anyone here ever had someone say something to you that you didn't want to hear, but you know you needed to hear it? Does that make sense? Like, have you had that happen to you? Well. Um, Man, some of you may know I'm from the most prestigious school in the Midwest, Nebraska Wesleyan University, and uh, thank you. I uh, got some fans, and so I was a communication major because all I really know how to do is talk. Uh, and so anyways, did that, and uh, I had to get an internship for my degree, and so I ended up getting lucky enough to land a job at Sand Hills Publishing here in town. Now, um, so I'm working there, and I'm loving it. Let's just say I'm making some decent money, okay? Your boy's eating a blue sushi in Laszlo's when he wants to, okay? Uh, and so uh, I'm enjoying it. I'm not eating ramen noodles like a typical college student. I'm making good money at Sandhills. And um, man, so if you don't know what Sandhills Publishing is, it's an international uh, publishing company that has trade publications all over the world. And so uh, I'm wearing a suit and tie every day. I know it's kind of hard to believe, but look at this picture. This is your boy back in the day, all right? <laughs> I'm not looking bad back then, okay? But don't get the idea I'm not going to come to church like that unless it's Easter and Christmas, okay? So I'm going to be staying with my Levi's and going. So that's me back in the day. That's my Sand Hills days. And so um, I'm going through there. Uh, like I said, really enjoying it. Uh, but then the summer before my senior year, uh, I went on a mission trip for two weeks to South Africa. Now, while I was in South Africa, I just grew a love for the people. I said, man, I want to go back. And so I committed after I graduate college, I'm going to spend six months in South Africa. That was my plan. And it seemed like a pretty good plan for what God had called me to. Uh, I also met a cute girl named Kristen, who later became my wife when we were in South Africa. And some of you guys were like, oh, Kristen's so sweet. Like, bless her heart. She married a pastor. Like, she's not in it for the money. Well, y'all didn't know she started dating me when I was making bank at Sandhills, okay? <laughs> now, joke's on her because she might have been a gold digger. I don't know. So we can't find out. She got locked in. But anyways, man, but by God's grace, uh, my senior year, I had a blast. I'm working at Sandhills, doing well. My sales are shooting up, doing a great job, like I said, and they offer me a full-time job. Send me down to Austin. We love your work ethic, all the stuff. We want to offer you a full-time role at Sandhills. And so I'm thinking, dude, that sounds pretty darn good. And so I love the people I worked with. I was good at what I did. And let's just say the salary was more than I'm making right now, okay? So I'm like, dang, this signed me up. What do I have to 
son. And so, man, I meet with one of my friends, Andrew McGill, and I sit down with him and I just explain my dilemma, right? Hey, I want to go to Africa, but dude, sandals, you know, and I'm going through and I figured he's, dude's going to empathize with his brother. He didn't quite do that. But uh, man, the job, just to lay this out, the job at Sandhills would mean that I could pay off my debt in the first year out of college, right? I could actually tell my friends I graduated high school with that I have a steady job, which most of them probably bet I wouldn't, okay? So that sounded nice. Um, man, I have an income. I wouldn't have to raise support. Uh, it was what I went to school for. I could be a light in the workplace to people that naturally aren't inclined to church. Uh, it was an extremely hard job to get. And I could buy a ring, get married, and have a sick house, okay? So so that was kind of my, I'm like, okay, look, that's, there's some decent things to that. The other option, this is option two, I could quit my job, not pay off any of my debt, give up the consistency and stability of a job, um, uh, but I could also hang out with people all day long in South Africa and just share the gospel and just love them, right? So you look at some of those, and friends, let's be honest, on a pretty objective level, if you look at pros and cons and benefits, Sandhill seems to outweigh Africa by a little bit, all right? So I'm, t- I'm kind of debating between some of that. And I go through and I share for 30 minutes. Dude, this is, this is my dilemma. This is where I'm at. And I'm thinking my dude's going to be like, take the job, you know? And he looks at me and he says one sentence. Austin, it sounds like you're running away from the call of God and running towards comfort. I about kicked him in his throat, okay? Uh, he's 6'6", so I don't know if my foot could reach there, but nonetheless, I about did it, okay? I thought about my head, so it, can't, it won't work. But um, all that to say, man, it hurt. That was the last thing I wanted to hear. I wanted him to affirm what I wanted to do and go into the work, but he was bold enough to tell me the truth. And though it was painful, man, friends, it revealed my slavery to money, and my slavery to possessions, and my slavery to people's opinions, and my slavery to my idea of what success is, and it completely changed the trajectory of my life. Man, I would not be here today if Andrew wasn't bold enough to tell me the truth and invite me into walking in freedom from bondage of this world. I would not be here today. And in the same way in John 8, Jesus is confronting the lies these men are believing. He's speaking into them, and, and he, he, he's exposing their slavery and inviting them into experience true freedom. And here's why this matters. We need the hard truth, right? We just, if we, if we want to grow at all, we need the word of God to penetrate our hearts, to convict us, compel us, and drive us out of comfort. And a lot of people are enslaved to so many things that are completely oblivious to it. We have no idea. And some of this room, people in this room might be assuming that you're walking with God, but, but man, you're, you're enslaved to religious obligation and duty, and you're not finding any joy in it. And some people in this room are enslaved to, to bigger and better and more square footage and more money and more this and more that. And, and it's such a, it has such a dangerous hold on us that we don't even see. City Light, freedom is only found in the person of Jesus. And by his grace, he exposes our sin and slavery so that we might turn to him and find freedom. That's what he does. So that's where we're going this morning in John 8. That's what he's getting to. And so we'll jump in, read verses 31 through 40 uh, one more time. And so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they answered, and we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. 
I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. And so my first point this morning, I only have two, is that Jesus is exposing slavery. Jesus is exposing slavery. So in verse 32, Jesus clearly says, man, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. But then they respond, they're like, whoa, whoa, in verse 33, like, what do you mean being free? Like, we've never been enslaved to anybody before. What, what, are, you, what are you talking about? They're asking the question, well, why do I need to be freed and what am I a slave to, right? Um, in their response to Jesus offering freedom, they asserted that they were descendants of Abraham and that they denied that they'd ever been in slavery, their claim uh, that Abraham's descendants had never been enslaved was clearly false, right? Uh, I'm surprised Jesus was like, hey, you guys ever heard of a dude named Moses? Uh, he spent a little time in Egypt, and, and actually those people, the story of the Red Sea and the splitting and stuff like that going through, yeah, I'm pretty sure Egypt wasn't a vacation destination with mimosas and poolside cabanas, right? Like, that's not what that place was. And so, yeah, you were enslaved. Uh, man, they were enslaved to Egypt and Assyria and Babylonia and Persia and Macedonia, Egypt again, Syria, and then finally Rome. They were enslaved, but how hard is it for religious, proud people to admit their failings and their needs, right? It's hard for us to admit. When we want to stand in our goodness, it's hard to admit that we need help. But Jesus is confronting them at the very places they found their security, right? So he's confronting, he's coming in. That was their religious perspective on slavery and their reliance on being Abraham's descendants. Okay, so first, look at their religious perspective in verse 34. Uh, Jesus speaks to it and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Okay, their confidence and their sense of freedom has been misplaced because being a Jew and not a Gentile doesn't mean you can escape the condemnation that your sins deserve, right? They were sinful and they, man, they had just celebrated Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur means the day of atonement. And this is the day, we talked about this a few weeks ago, Mo did, with um, saying that the, the high priest would walk into the Holy of Holies once a year and atone for the sins of all the people, right? The many sins of the people. This is a celebration to say, man, you've atoned for my sins because I need it. So obviously celebrating this day reminds you, oh, I'm sinful. I have sin. I need someone to atone and pay for my sin, right? But they didn't seem to get it. In the presence of God, both Jews and Gentiles are guilty for their sin. And today, both the church and the unchurched are guilty. Both the good rule follower and the rebellious rule breaker are in equal need of the grace of God. We have to see that. And being sinful slaves before God, they needed somebody to, to rescue them, someone to set them free. And as Jesus is exposing their slavery, he gives this confident assurance in verse 36. So if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. It's amazing news. So uh, he's confronting their religious perspective that they weren't slaves. They certainly were because they practiced sin. And second, we see that their concept of inheritance was in jeopardy right? Uh, Jesus acknowledged, well, yeah, you are a descendant of Abraham, but you're not doing what Abraham's doing. You're trying to, to kill me. Another father is directing your lives. 
Now, just some pastoral advice and some input and encouragement. If you ever want to encourage somebody, you got someone you're praying about, just text them John 8, 44. Don't look at it yet. Don't look down. Don't look down. John 8, 44. Just say, hey, no explanation. Just send it to him. And I did it the other week to one of my friends. He's like, bro, thanks for thinking of me. Send me a scripture. I'm at work. I'm going to check it later. Um, and so anyways, you want to know what John 8, 44 says? You were of the father, or you were of your father, the devil, and your will is to do his, his will. Uh, let's be honest, Caleb's never used that as their encouraging word of the week, all right? So uh, anyways, the, he's, God's saying, or Jesus is saying, man, you're directed by a different father. You're enslaved to that. So in verse 37, Jesus says, yeah, you are a descendant of Abraham. That's pretty clear. You can track your, your bloodline, your heritage up to Abraham. But then in verse 39, he uses a different word, and he says, you're not children of Abraham, right? So yeah, you're a descendant, but you're not a child. Now, the reason given was that they did not act like Abraham. They didn't do what Abraham was doing. So Jesus is telling them that belief, not bloodline, shows if you're a true son of Abraham. Okay? Belief, not bloodline. And at the end of verse 39, Jesus says, you aren't doing the works of Abraham, right? He just says, clearly, I can tell you're not a child because you're not doing the works. The question has to be asked, and we're walking through our Bible, well, what were the works of Abraham? Well, I'm glad you guys asked. In Genesis 15, 6, um, uh, says that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, the work of Abraham is belief in God. And then a few weeks ago in John 6, 29, we said that it says, Jesus says, the work of God is to believe in him who he has sent. And so clearly, man, the, the work of Abraham was to believe in God. And the work for us today is to believe Jesus is who he indeed says he is, God. So that's what it is. Belief, not bloodline, determines who are truly children of Abraham. And then when questioned about the authenticity of their faith, the religious leaders point to Abraham as their security. They confidently touted their ancestry. Man, Abraham, we're descendants of Abraham. We're safe. We're good. And I think we often fall into the same trap. Someone asks us, hey, are you a Christian? Oh, totally, man. My parents go to church. I grew up in the church. Uh, my, my grandparents uh, are Christian too. And I belong to this denomination or this church or I do this. And we kind of tout we just, our ancestry more than our actual physical, uh, our actual belief. In City Light, if you think you're a Christian because your parents are or your grandparents are, you are sadly mistaken. A mentor of mine a few years ago told me, God doesn't have any grandchildren. He has children. They come to him personally. And this is what Jesus is saying. Man, faith isn't inherited or passed on. It's decided personally. You have a responsibility for your own soul that you'll give an account to before a holy God. So we come by faith, not heritage. Have to be clear about that. And so Jesus is speaking this truth, and this is not what these men wanted to hear at all, right? They start getting a little bit angry. They start getting a little bit flustered because he's shaking the very foundation of what they've built their lives on. He's exposing their slavery. Now, we have to be clear, making this personal, we hate being told we're enslaved, right? That's why I hated when my friend told me, no, man, it looks like you're running to comfort, not to the call of God. We don't like to be told that we're slaves to anything. Um, I didn't, we don't want to be exposed. Now, one of the reasons, I think, one of the reasons is that we think, we like to think we're in control, right? Well, I think we've got control of the situation. Take alcoholism, for instance. Um, anyone that struggles with alcoholism, one of the hardest things to get through is actually admitting that they have a need, right? That's the first step. Admit that you need help. And so we say things like, oh, I don't need this drink. I'm just going to choose to have it. 
or I can stop after this drink. I'm just going to have a few more after it. We think we're in control, and we do this with so many things in our lives. Me? I'm not enslaved to people's opinions. Like, I just like to have my house super clean and my kids acting perfectly and everyone think that I'm always tidy, right? Like, we fall into this trap. No, I'm not enslaved to people's opinions. Or, or no, I'm not enslaved to shopping. I just like nice things and I have a credit card, so why not? Or I'm not enslaved to pornography. I could stop looking. I'm just choosing to, to click. I mean, I'm, okay. I'm not addicted. I'm not enslaved to it. I'm not enslaved to bigger and better. I just think we should maybe add on to our house and maybe add us some square footage or get something bigger. I'm not enslaved to bigger and better. I just I have control over it. I just think it'd be nice. We minimize our enslavement when we're enslaved. We say things like, it's not that bad, or it could be worse. I mean, honestly, look at that person, and we, we, downsay, we downplay the effect it has on us. So we think that we're in control. Another problem that we have with enslavement is that we, we become desensitized to that reality. We become desensitized to our condition. Our hearts over time just become calloused, and, and we forget, and we, we lose sight of the impact it has on us and others, and we just become desensitized to it. And the realities and most of the things that we're enslaved to, we really like we don't want to admit that, we, that it rules us or that it, that it holds us and controls us. We don't want to admit that. And friends, the most insidious slavery is the one that controls us without us even knowing it. That's the danger we have. And that's what's happening in this passage. Jesus says, I can give you freedom. And they, they, they confidently say, we, we, we don't need freedom. We've already, we're already free. They're blind to their slavery. They become desensitized to it, and Jesus is exposing it. Now, Jesus graciously and sometimes painfully exposes our slavery. So Matt Chandler is a a pastor I look up to. He's in Texas, and I listen to frequently. And, And I love that he says, when God works on our hearts, he doesn't use a butter knife. He uses a scalpel. And I know that kind of sounds a little bit weird to us, right? What do you mean, butter knife and scalpel? Well, Imagine that you're walking through your day and someone knocks you unconscious, cuts open your head, pours poisonous chemicals in you. Now, some of you are like, that person needs to be in jail, right? That doesn't seem right. I'm okay. My head's okay. But when you find out that you have brain cancer and you will literally die unless someone does surgery on you, it starts to make sense. In the pain, there's a purpose to it, right? There's a reason why he would do that. And men in the room and some women, uh, man, let's be honest, we don't like going to the doctor, okay? My wife is like, you're sick right now, and I'm going to give you some medicine. I'm like, I can handle it. My body's strong enough to fight it off. She's like, you're stupid, and you're going to get sick. You're going to get even more sick. And so what happens is I fight off, and I try and sit in my ignorance, and, uh, and, and eventually the, the condition gets even worse because I don't treat it in the same way all of us in the room act like that in our sin. We ignorantly try and act like it's not there, but friends, we're sick, with, with the sin of God, without Jesus, we need to face the truth that we're all enslaved to something without Jesus. And another thing, too, is seemingly the, the freest person can be the, the biggest slave, the greatest slave. You, you don't even see. So in Mark 10, uh, you get the story of the rich young ruler, 
right? He comes up and this man, oh man, he's rich. Like he can buy anything he wants. He can buy bigger, better, newer, improved, all that. He's got money. He's rich. And he's also young, which is really helpful because he doesn't have aching knees or a bad back. He can do as much as he wants, run, travel, explore. He's got plenty of years ahead of him. He's young. And he's also a ruler, right? So he's got presence and power and influence, and he can employ people and control people and fight. He can do all all of that. He has power. He's a ruler. And so he comes to Jesus and he says, hey, Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus says, simple, Give give up everything you have and come follow me. If you want to inherit eternal life, it's simple, man. Just uh, give up the stuff you have here on earth and then come and follow me. And scripture records that he walked away sad because he had many possessions. Now, this man seemed like the freest person in the world. He had everything that our society says you need to be free and be happy. And yet Jesus says one sentence and his slavery is exposed and he walks away sad. Man, for many of us in the room, I think we're guilty of envying people with more than us. Oh, I want a bigger house and a better this, and that sounds so sweet in that corner office. But man, if we're not careful, more earthly possessions can lead to more spiritual slavery. Worldly freedom can often lead to spiritual slavery if we're not careful. Jesus graciously does open heart surgeon like a good physician with a precise scalpel because he loves us too much to let us stay in our sin. It hurts, but I promise you it's good. So Jesus exposes slavery, but he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't stop with the problem. He actually gives a solution. He offers freedom. And so let's look back, verses 31 through 36. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, uh, you, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The, sl- the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. My first point was exposing, Jesus exposing slavery. My second point is experiencing freedom. Experiencing freedom. Now, let me say this. At the point of you confessing your need for God and your sin before him and placing your full faith in his death on the cross for you and atoning work for you, you are eternally free. Okay, your, your sins are paid for. Uh, the punishment that you and I deserve was paid for by Jesus on the cross, past, present, future. It has been paid for. Isn't that incredible? That's the gospel. Jesus would do that for us. But though you are free before God in Christ, we're still messy and still behaviorally enslaved to things here on earth. Does that make sense? Though we're free before God in Jesus on this earth, there's still a behavioral enslavement that we've got to fight. In, in Galatians 5.1, Paul, Paul speaks this. He says, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and don't submit back to the yoke of slavery. Stand firm in your freedom. And so though believers in Jesus are eternally free, we don't always experience freedom, right? You felt that, that tension. And in verses 31, Jesus is saying, man, if you want to experience freedom, here, here's how you do it. You abide in my word. Abide in my word. 
Now, I know that we don't use that word abide very often in our common language. So to help you understand what that means, uh, abide is synonymous with words like continue and remain and, and stay or, or hang out. That's kind of what he's saying. He's saying, hey, stay in my word. Don't swerve off. Don't sway away. Stay in my word. Abide in it. Now, to help, to help us understand and define what abiding means, I think it has two points. And the first is that we study the word of God. Okay, the first thing with abiding, if you want to abide in God's word, the first thing is that we need to study it. Disciple uh, simply means uh, a student or a learner, right? A student or a learner. So we should be, if we're disciples of Jesus, we should be learners and students of the Bible. It just seems pretty practical. Um, now, God revealed himself through this book. Like he said, hey, if you want to know who I am, open this up and you can find out who I am. All the vastness and the beauty is in this. If you want to expose that to who? To your own heart. You want to learn who I am, check this out. And so I don't care if you've been a Christian for four weeks or for 40 years, we should always be gradually growing in our knowledge of the Bible and of God, right? Not just intellectual knowledge, but knowledge that builds up in love and points to Jesus. And so listen, we're not simply praying to know who God is. Prayer is essential and important and and amazing in the Christian's life. But if our prayer isn't guided by the Bible, well, then it's probably superficial in some ways. And it's probably not understanding the full character of God. So we have to make sure in my prayer, I'm praying through this and from this, and I know who God is. Um, We have to make sure that we're not just picturing God in our emotion, our own concoction of who he is. Matthew 4.4, 4, uh, Jesus says, man, man must not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. We should love this word, cherish this word, walk with this word, study this word back and front. R.C. Sproul uh, says, the word of God can be in your mind without being in your heart. Okay, it's helpful for us to understand. It can be in your mind without being in your heart. You can just know a lot of stuff. But, it cannot be in your heart unless it's first in your mind. That makes sense? Saying, yeah, there's some people that know a ton of stuff and it's not translated to the heart, but at the same time, it can't be in your heart unless until it's first in your mind, in your head. Um, so if you want to know God, you have to spend time with him. We know that. With any relationship, we spend time with somebody. And this is the primary means that God uses to spend time with you, to know who he is. So friends, would we study the Bible? Would we love the Bible? Would we open it much and not let it collect dust in our living rooms? So we should study the word. The second thing is we should obey the word of God, right? Obey the word of God. Now, in verse 32, Jesus says, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. So simply we need to open ourselves up to this to convict us and guide us. But it can't be simply to gain intellectual knowledge. I said that. It's got to build up in love. It's got to build up and produce something in us. And so, frankly, man, I think what we should do is we study and learn the Word of God. We apply it to our lives. We obey it. And then we walk in freedom. Repeat. So simple. Uh, I'm going to study the Word of God. I'm going to know it. I'm going to apply it to my life. I'm going to experience freedom, and then I'm just going to repeat. That's the, the, the track that Jesus is giving us to do. We cannot simply learn a bunch of knowledge. That's not what abiding is. We need to joyfully obey this Word. And so 
the reason today that many Christians aren't experiencing free, spiritual freedom is that though they might be biblically informed, they're not biblically transformed. Maybe you're biblically informed and awesome, that's great, but has it transformed you? Has it applied in your life? Has it moved in your heart to change you? And so if you're biblically literate, if you know this thing, if you can spout off verses, yet you feel bound, perhaps it's because you haven't obeyed it yet. I know that's the case in my own life. And, and, and listen, when I talk about obeying God's word, I'm not talking about behavior modification, okay? Jesus isn't just saying, hey, you know what? Man, you just need to buckle down, uh, put your head down, and just run hard and get better. No, he's not speaking about that. He's pleading with him saying, man, this is beautiful, and I'm amazing, and I'm revealing myself to you. Would you cherish this and know this? Hebrews 4.12 says the, live, the word of God is living and active. Man, it's beautiful and, and amazing and transforming our lives, And so it's not just that we read words on a page, but it's that every page points to Jesus in all of Scripture. It's not just memorizing words, it's pointing to and worshiping the word, Jesus, who spoke the earth into existence. That's who we're reading about. Abiding doesn't mean knowing the Bible, it means enjoying the Bible. Not simply about doing, it's about desire as well. That's what he's speaking to. Not simply knowing, but enjoying. And then he gives us the result of it. So you study it, you obey it, and the result is freedom. Jesus is free, and he enjoys that freedom, and he's offering to pump that freedom into our lives, and he defines it as free indeed. It's incredible. I mean, this is freedom from the penalty of sin and the allurement of it. This is freedom to live a holy life, freedom to to choose the right thing, to grow, to to reach our potential. That's freedom. John Piper uh, describes freedom as the desire to do exactly what you want to do and not regret it for all of eternity. (laughs) Isn't that amazing freedom? Yeah, to do, I mean, it's God would shape our hearts to do exactly what we want to do, and we're not going to regret it for all of eternity. So you might say, I don't agree with you, Austin. Actually, freedom is that I can go out tonight, get drunk at the bars, take a random stranger home, sleep with them, whatever, and then, uh, and then and go ahead. That's, that's what freedom is to me. Well, great, man. Tell me the next morning you don't wake up with some doubts and some regrets. Tell me you don't wake up the next morning and think, ah, oh, what did I do? Why should I have done that? And you, know, you go through all. So that's not freedom. It's slavery. And our society is, is, is pointed and pushed it to say that's what freedom is, and it's not. That's another form of slavery. So, man, freedom is God's work in our lives by his word and by his spirit to conform our hearts to his. That's freedom, and it's in Jesus, and I want it. And so some of you in the room are saying, man, yeah, I, I, I agree. That sounds good. Abiding, knowing, gabang. Okay, I want to do it. But man, I, I don't have a ton of time, Austin. My wife is, we have a three-month-old daughter and she like takes up so much time. My wife's saying, it's hard for me to spend time with Jesus. And, and you might say, I work 70 hours a week and I come home and I got to hang out with my family and do all this stuff. And I don't have any time. And so all that, I would say, I empathize with you and I relate greatly. Okay, one of the hardest things for me in my work in my week is just to spend time with Jesus in his Bible. Not studying for a sermon, not studying for a Bible study, just sitting down saying, God, Father, I just want to know who you are from this. So I, I empathize with you, with your busyness, and I empathize with your with your hurry, and it's hard for me to get in, and I know it's hard to abide, but 
to that, I'm, convic- I'm convicted that every single day I make opportunity to feed my body, right? Every three square meals a day, you guys can tell I'm eating, okay? Um, and so I'm making time. I'm carving out in my schedule time to eat, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and second dinner. And so I'm just kidding, <laughs> and I snack before bed. But anyways, uh, man, I always make time to fill my body. And so why would I not think it's, it's even more important to fill my soul, to feed my soul. And I walk through, I say, man, I'm going to make it, I'm going to spend money for food, I'm going to go out to a nice restaurant, but at the same time, I'm not just going to sit down, carve out time, and just feed my soul. So can I encourage you, man, if you've got time, do it. It doesn't have to be a two-hour block in your time where you're spending a ton of time and you're journaling going through. If you're super busy, man, can I just encourage you, spend 15 minutes every morning or every night just at lunch. You eat, you have an hour for lunch. Take 45 minutes and last 15, just spend in the Word. It doesn't have to be crazy or profound. Just get under this. And I promise, as you spend more time in this, as you're obedient to this, you're going to want more and more and more. And so I know there's different seasons of life, and some of you have a capability to spend three hours in the Word every day. I'm glad. I hope that you use that. But others, like I said, moms or dads or busy people, whatever it is, college students, man, would you just uh, be faithful to spend a little bit of time with him every morning and see what he does with that? Don't let your uh, infrequency or your inability to spend a ton of time uh, impede you from spending any time at all. Um, and, uh, and so for those of you in the room that, that do spend consistent time in God's word, that do spend time in his word every single day, can I press in and ask, are you actually savoring it or are you rushing through it? Are you actually enjoying it? Uh, my wife and I had dinner with uh, some of our good friends. His name's Seth Remmer. And when, when he eats food, he like, he's like, close his eyes, he's like, mm. I'm like, looking at him like, okay, is this all right? And so literally we're having dinner and I'm like, uh, asked his wife, like, hey, do we need to go? Like, something happened right here. And so uh, she's like, no, no, no. He just, like, when he has good food, he just sits down and he enjoys it and just savors it and closes his eyes. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, I need that with the word of God. I, I, I want to savor it and sit down and just spend time in it. And so I want to ask, man, are you rushing through your time in God's word? Are you actually closing your eyes, savoring it, and chewing on the vastness of God's word? In City Life, this matters because we need to know the truth of God in order to fight Satan. And not only just know it, we need to choose to believe it in order to fight. I have a friend named Xavier, and she just placed her faith in Jesus a few months ago uh, through our church and through our city group. And so we're hanging out in city group a couple weeks ago, and she says, Austin, man, I'm struggling. I feel so tempted to, to not read my Bible and not go to church and not be around community. And I feel so tempted to make life about myself and get mad at my husband. And I looked at her and I said, Xavier, that's good news. Christian, if there isn't a sense of fight in your life, you're probably losing. The Christian life was never intended to be easy. You look through Jesus' words and his encouragement to his people, and it's like, man, armor yourself and buckle down because Satan's going to try and rip you down and allure you, but you have to fight for freedom, fight for joy in Jesus. And so I Xavier, that's good news. God's protecting you. You're actually fighting. Christian, in the room, if you're not fighting, you're probably losing. Think of it... Um, um, so let me say this. By faith in Jesus, again, you are eternally free. But here on earth, we battle to fight, battle and fight for freedom of sin. Think of a jail cell. 
you're in a jail cell and you're hanging out. You got your cuffs on, the door's closed, you're hanging out. And all of a sudden the doors open up, the cuffs come off. You get handed a paper inside your cell that says you're free. The charges have been dropped. You, you are free to go. So I want to ask the question, in that moment, are you free? Yeah, you are free. To the state, legally, you are free. But are you experiencing the freedom? Not until you stand up and walk out of the jail cell, right? So yeah, maybe you're free, but you're still sitting in, 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 in that until you actually walk out is when you're actually going to experience that freedom. And man, for so many of us in the room, Jesus is saying, you are free indeed, and yet we're sitting in our slavish ways. We're still in our jail cell acting. He's saying, man, the cuffs are off and the door's open and you're free to go, and yet we're sitting there enslaved to that and we're not enslaved. Jesus is saying, stand firm, take a step out and experience the freedom that I bought for you. Man, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, let me be so clear, you are no longer a slave. You're a child of God and he loves you and you're eternally bought for and purchased by the blood of Jesus. That's amazing. And so never think your identity is a slave, but when we need to walk from that identity that we're free and we're children and walk out from that and experience that. So though we act like slaves, if you place your faith in Jesus, let me, be, let me assure you, you're no longer a slave. So Christian in the room, can I ask, man, are you experiencing the freedom Jesus purchased for you on the cross? Are you walking in that? Are you sitting in your jail cell, though the door is open, and just experiencing slavery? Step out. Stand firm in the freedom Jesus bought for you. Don't fall back into your old ways. Take tangible steps to, to walk with Jesus. Let me tell you, this freedom that we're talking about from the behavioral freedom and the, and the sin that we're fighting against, it's a progressive process, okay? There, there's, a, there's a process and a time to it. You're not just, boom, I decided to abide and so I'm behaviorally free. No, it's not gonna be that. There's a process to fight for it and, and, to, and to, to look, to expose your sin. All right, man, this morning I'm convicted. This is something I, I feel exposed in my life. And you abide in the word of God, see how he speaks into that, experience freedom, and then find another thing. Have Jesus expose that slavery in you and fight it. So it's a continual thing you've got to, you've got to pursue and fight together. One of two words describes you this morning, bound or free. There's no middle ground. And so if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, he's offering you freedom through a relationship with him. Free. Free to you. You'd come, you'd die to yourself, and you come to him, and you receive freedom completely free to you. Jesus paid all of that. You don't have to get better. You don't have to work yourself up and, and, and get better and improve yourself, and maybe you get parole, or maybe you get to open up the, the jail cell. No, he's offering you freedom right now through faith in him and trust in him. And so would you do that this morning? You don't have to get better. You don't have to wait. He's offering it to you this morning. And for the Christian in the room, I, I mean, I just have to ask again, are you experiencing that freedom? And I want to encourage you, keep taking steps out and away from that jail cell and experience the freedom Jesus bought for you. Keep on and walk in the freedom. Jesus didn't just save us from hell. He saved us to actually live and experience freedom. Amen.